The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So as many of you know, over the last three years, uh, Don and Katie Baldrica have been a part of Heritage Christian Fellowship, and, and they kind of started uh, worshiping with us at kind of at the beginning of what was ended up being a kind of a tumultuous season for us as a church. And God brought you here. Don, a, a faithful servant of the Lord, was a pastor in our valley for, for many, 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 many years. And God brought him and Katie here at a time before I was a part of Heritage. And you guys just brought stability and love and encouragement. And I just know in the year that I've been here, Don and Katie, you guys have been like an unbelievable source of encouragement and truth. And sometimes even just slight loving correction, which I've really loved and appreciated. This is Don and Katie's last Sunday here at Heritage. And you guys have probably heard Don teach. He's Peter. Do you guys remember when he was Peter, and he played the role of Peter. And this is their last Sunday, and I just asked Don if he could just share some words of encouragement for us as a church before you head to to South Carolina. And then a little bit later, we'll invite Katie up, and we're going to pray over them. But you guys just give Don a few minutes just to share with what the Lord has put on his heart as he prepares to leave our fellowship and move on. Okay, thank you. You know, I first want to just thank you for being our church family these last three years. Uh, it's been a wonderful experience for us. It's exactly what we needed coming out of ministry for, from another church for 31 years. And it has just been a blessing over these three years. And so uh, it's tough just after three years to say we're moving on, but we're m- moving to, to be with family. So that's a, a wonderful thing. Um, this morning, uh, Paul graciously allowed me to have a few minutes because I wanted to share something that's got put on my heart probably about a month ago came out of our huddle group that we're in. We're going through uh, 1 Peter. And I said, boy, I'd love to share something that I'm hoping will encourage you, will kind of maybe just set a little fire under you saying, yes, this is what I want to be true of me. This is what I want to be true of our heritage family here. And so that's my purpose this morning and and the few minutes that I have here before Jeremy comes up uh, is to share that. And, you know, it starts with a prayer uh, in Scripture. If God were to come to you maybe one night and say to you, okay, I'm going to give you one prayer request that I'm answering this one exactly as you, as you want it answered. If God revealed that to you and I'm going to give you a week to think about it and come up with one request, a burden that you want answered, do you think that that prayer request would be the most important thing on your heart? Or would you say, no, I'll go for something trivial. No, I believe we would think that whole week and be praying, saying, God, what is it, the one thing that's the most important thing? And we would pray the thing that was of absolute number one importance to us on our hearts. And, and I believe that's true of prayer. When we pray, we pray for the things that are most important to us. And it's interesting because in the prayer of Jesus in John 17, he kind of focuses on on, on one thing he prays about. That is the most important thing to him for you and for me and for the church here at Heritage. And I I think it's interesting as we look at this and what it says, and then we're going to go to this other passage that God really put on my heart, but it needs to start here. Listen to what the one thing, Jesus prays basically for one thing, For God's people, for us, 2,000 years ago, he prayed this. So to me, it's like this is the most important thing for us to take to heart. He says, I do not ask, this is John 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is us, thousands of years later. Here's the one thing he prays for, that they may be one. 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also would be in us. The most important thing for Jesus to pray for is that we'd be one, that there'd be unity amongst God's people. And what's interesting here, he tells us why, what difference this makes. Listen to what he says next. He says, that they may be one, uh, just as you and Father and me, and I knew that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is saying when the church is in unity and acting as one, it is a testimony. And it exposes and it reveals and helps the world to see that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that he truly came from God. He's saying that when we as a church are unified, the world will take notice. This is what causes a church when people come to a church and they sense the power of God just walking in the building. It's because this church is one and they're unified and they're acting as, as Jesus, living as Jesus had wanted. Look, he says later in 22, the glory that you have given me, I give given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me so that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you have loved me. When heritage, when we respond in unity, the world will see, it will testify that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what does that look like? How does that lived out? This is where this passage had hit me from our huddle group. It's 1 Peter 3.8. I want to read the first part of it because it's going to explain. I want to break down what does it look like to live in unity? Because I think there can be some misconceptions here. So First uh, Peter 3, 8, it says this, finally, all of you. So he's saying, I'm talking to all you believers. This is a summary. This is what's important to Peter. Same thing that's important to Jesus. He says, have unity of mind. So, so all of you, finally, this way, have unity of mind. Have the mind of Christ being one. So what does that look like? I think one of the things that we may say right off the bat is, well, we need to have this mind of Christ, so we need to be correct in all our theology. We need to make sure we're in agreement in what is the truth. And that is true. That's the first step. But that doesn't make a church unified. It doesn't. And we're going to see that from this passage. Because if that's what he was saying there, if that's what Peter was saying, okay, it's about making sure you know all the theological truths and you're all in agreement on every little point, the rest of this verse would say, finally, all of you, be, have unity of mind, study your Bible, memorize it, every day spend in the Word, make sure you're all in agreement with all the truths from my Word. That's what he would say next. But it doesn't say that at all. It doesn't reference the Scriptures at all. Listen to what it says. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Those are all relational elements. Those only happen and are exercised in the body of Christ when we get to know each other. When we, get, when we start letting ourselves be known and getting to know other people. See, sometimes people think a church is unified simply because they're coming together and they all agree on the statement of faith. Well, that church is unified. That's not what the Scripture's saying here. You see, and that's illustrated by what I have this pile of flour here. And um, when someone believes that, okay, I just attend this church, I agree with this doctrinal statement, I come, I, I say hi to people, I'm nice to people, then I go home, that's an attender. 
And it's like a church is a, a, a pile of flour. How strong is this pile of flour? When a little trouble comes, what happens? Poof. I'm gone. I'm out of here. You know what? I, I, I don't like the color they painted the place. Poof. Because I'm just an attender. I'll go to some place where I like the colors here. And you know what? They're starting to change some things here. And oh, I don't like that. I, I'm just a tender, so I'll just go somewhere else. Because I have no connection. I have no bond with these people. I just attend. I come. I want to listen to the, I want to sing the worship. I want to hear the sermon. And then I go my way. That's not what Jesus prayed for. Because if you look at this passage in 1 Peter 3, he's saying, how do you show sympathy towards someone unless you know them? If I come Sunday morning, I say, hi, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing fine. See you later. Where am I going to show sympathy to that person? I don't know anything about them. How am I going to show brotherly love when I don't know the people? How do I have a tender heart unless I hear what people are going through? See, and we can even make a danger of saying, okay, but I'm in a Bible study. But if all I do in the Bible study is study the Bible, and we just learn the truths of Scripture, but we never interact with it, and we never talk about how does that hit you, and what are you struggling with there? And if we don't do that, then there's no chance to show that love towards one another. See, and, and this is risky, because in order to love, we have to be willing to share of ourselves and want to get to know other people. You know, I look at Jesus, and he loved the disciples, but he was hurt by them, wasn't he? How do you think it felt when he was arrested and they all took off? Sure, he knew that was happening, but how do you think that felt? Wow, you guys all abandoned me. That hurts. It hurts at times to let people in your life. And so a study where you look in the scriptures, but then you, you share your lives. So now I know what you're struggling with. I, I know your joys. I know your heartaches. And I can pray for you. And a humble mind, you know why we need a humble mind? Because when we get to know each other, we get to see that these people aren't perfect. And it's like, oh my goodness, you have an issue with that. And you're kind of irritating in this way. But a humble mind says, you know what? I'm irritating in ways too. And humility is necessary for us to be one. And to love one another. Because look what it says at the end of the prayer in John 17. Let me just read that to you. He says this, the last verse in, 20, in chapter 17. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. They will know your disciples by what? Your love. And your love is shown by getting to know one another. And it changes a church that looks like this to this. When we act in unity and in love, the church turns into this. A solid block that you can build the kingdom of God upon. And what I love about this block is, look, there's no specific pieces that are more important than another. They're all important. They all work together. And this end of the block never touches this end of the block. It doesn't mean you have to get to know everyone in this church. But you know the people you do know, you build relationships with, you love, you get to share your heart and they share their heart. You're connected and then that spreads out throughout the church. So you are interconnected. And so this isn't just your church, this is your family. And so when tough time comes, tough times come, which come in all families, you don't bail on your family. You say, this is my family. I love these people. They love me. They're there for me. I'm there for them. You stay together. And this is where the church of God, the kingdom of God can be built. And my encouragement to you is this. I know this goes against our cultural norms right now. The culture says, no, no, be this. 
Don't let people get close. Just be friendly. Say hi. Get out of here. And you know what? You like the sermon. You take those truths and you never interact. And, and that is not what Jesus is praying for. If you're a person said, I want to be obedient to scripture. I want to have the same heart as Jesus. Jesus' heart for heritage is, a, is this, to love one another, to let yourself be known, to get to know others, be vulnerable, get a chance to be sympathetic, to show brotherly love, to have a tender heart and a humble spirit. As, as, as this church does that, it's going to become stronger and stronger. And people are just going to be coming to know the Lord, practically just walking into this building. They will sense the power of God. They will sense that Jesus is real because of the unity you have for one another. When we first came here, it was a difficult time for the church. Uh, it wasn't an easy time. We've been through, um, you guys have been through a lot. Uh, but now that we're leaving, we feel we're at a high point. The church is at a great spot. And so it, it's so encouraging to be able to leave thinking, man, I, we just feel that the church is going in the right direction. To make disciples who make disciples, which means I have to let myself be known and I have to get, be willing to get to know others. Fight the urge, you guys, if you have just been an attender, to say, God, help me take more time and to get to know people and, and to get involved a little more and reveal my heart so I'm not alone. And all of a sudden, these aren't just people that come together with me. This is my family. They know me. They love me. I pray for them. They pray for me. We're in this together. And then heritage will be a building block that the kingdom of God will grow in. Let me just pray for you guys. Father, I... I thank you for the three years we've had here. They've been wonderful. Lord, I thank you for the staff. I've so enjoyed getting to know the staff and, and their heart for you and what you're doing through them. Lord, I pray. I pray for the body here. That, Lord, you will help each person recognize it is their choice. They have to decide, am I going to be just an attender? Am I going to take the risk and allow myself to be known and to be loved by others with the good parts of me and with the, the ugly parts of me? Because we all have those, Lord. And so I pray in your powerful name that you help each person here to say, okay, I want to fulfill the prayers of Jesus and to be that kind of person here at Heritage and to make Heritage truly my family, not just where I attend. Lord, I know the evil one will continue to want to fight against this and keep people from taking the risk, but I pray they will see that it's worth it, and this is what will help the kingdom grow here, and it is in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Would you tell our brother Don thank you? We'll invite the elders up and the staff pastors up. Katie, you want to come on up? You guys can come right over here so we're not uh, standing on the table. I actually, as the elders and, and uh, some of the staff pastors are coming up, um, and as Katie comes up, I asked Katie before, I, I, I totally told Katie, I prepared her for this, so I'm not springing this on her. Katie, before we pray over you, I would just like to give you a minute or two just to, just to go ahead and just share what's on your heart. Thank you. It was nice of him, huh? <laughs> I just know that as I look out here, there's so many, especially women, who have touched my life. And I want to give glory to God because your kindness has brought him glory. So I just, there's some of you who aren't here today. I think of Marie Melgren and Holly who were so sweet to me when we first came and Callie inviting us. So we just want to say thank you. And the last thing I want to say is we will not forget you because you have been dear to us and um, 
We are rooting for you. We are praying for you to be, just like Don said, the building block of the kingdom of God and to keep bringing him glory in your everyday life, in your church life, and um, just to be his people. So that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, let's gather around. Would you guys uh, just extend a hand as we send them off to South Carolina as we pray over them, ask God's blessing upon their life and on their sending. Father, what a privilege to be uh, the family of God. God, I'm so thankful for my brother and my sister, Don and Katie. God, I'm thankful for the way they have uh, brought glory to you. God, the way they have loved as you love, the way they have encouraged and, and just walked faithfully with this body for three years, but just walked faithfully in the gospel and in the church of the Rogue Valley for over 30 years. God, would you go before them? to South Carolina, God. Would you go before them, God? Would you, would you use them and their gifts and their wisdom and their strengths and their weaknesses and their heartaches and their victories? God, use all of it to bring glory to yourself, to build your kingdom. God, bless them richly. And God, I do. I echo, I echo Don's prayer for our church. God, may the way they modeled uh, selflessness and, and discipleship and investment, God, may that be the norm in this family. God, as we seek to be the church that you call us to be and bring glory to you, God, we love you. And we love this family. God bless them and go with them as they go. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, would you give them thank you? Well, I feel like we should just pray and say amen. We'll call it a, we'll call it a day. Good word, Don. Good word. Well, we are going to be in Mark chapter 3. I don't know whose idea it was to put me up with the shortest amount of time, but <laughs> here we go. Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 19. Before we do that, would you pray with me once again? Father, our hearts are open to the working of your Holy Spirit. Change us with your truth. Shape us. Cause us to grow so that we can bear the image of your Son. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, one of the things that becomes so important to see in our understanding of the Gospels is the political climate which Jesus entered into. If there was a, a national campaign that would have been chanted by the people of Israel, it probably would have looked something like this. It probably would have been something like, MIGA, make Israel great again. The people were desperate for change. You see, poverty was abundant. Taxes were high. Rulers were corrupt. Oppression was everywhere. And the hopes of Israel were all in a political change. If they, if they could just have a new king, then, then things would be better. If there was just a turning over of the powers that be, then, then finally life would be okay, things would be better. So when 
John the Baptist starts preaching that God's messianic king is on his way, the nation is stirred. And then when Jesus appears on the scene and starts doing all the things that the, that the prophets had talked about, the, the things that they said would be elements of the messianic kingdom, the whole land is beginning to buzz. It's, it's this question rising up in this heart. Is God's promised messianic kingdom finally here? Is it, is it finally about to be realized? Will, will there be a revival of, of the national identity of Israel? Where, where it's no longer under the oppressive rule of Rome. Is this God's anointed king that will restore Israel to its Davidic-like glory? Is, is, is this him? Is he the one? And every step forward that Jesus takes in popularity, it puts the nation of Israel on this crash course with Rome and its political power. Additionally, the people that have a vested interest in keeping things the status quo, those that were religious political rulers within the temple, they are upset by the changes. They're threatened by the arrival of a competing kingdom. The rulers of the temple, these political religious leaders of Jesus' day, all stand to lose much if people begin following this would-be king. But Jesus just keeps talking about the kingdom. He won't shut up about it. And he, and he keeps preaching the good news to, to people and ministering to them and performing the promised signs of the kingdom. The, the blind see, the sick are healed, lepers are being cleansed. And even those who are held captive by spiritual forces are being set free. Not only does Jesus proclaim the kingdom, but Jesus is demonstrating the level of authority that he has in very clear and inarguable ways. Here in Mark's Gospel, we've seen several examples of this. Right off the bat in the first chapter, John the Baptist said that he was the one anointed by God to baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. That's a lot of authority. John the Baptist said in response, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his, his shoe st strap. God the Father took a moment to voice his opinion of the Son from heaven and stated that he was the Son in whom he was well pleased. Remember, Jesus faced off with Satan in the temptation and Satan got bested in that encounter? That's a lot of authority. Jesus shows mastery of and is authoritative in his interpretation of the law. Mark 1.22 records for us. They were astonished at his teaching because he taught with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. The demons keep falling down and trembling at his presence and crying out, you are the son of God. They fear his spiritual authority. Jesus keeps calling himself the son of man. This is a clear reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And in Mark 
2.10 and also in 2.28, we see Jesus laying claim to this messianic title and proclaiming his authority as the Messiah that God has promised. Jesus plainly stated in one passage in Mark, from chapter 2, verse 10, that he had the authority to forgive sins. People were incensed by it. What do you mean? Who can for forgive sins but God? Jesus said, I can. Let me prove it to you. And now, at the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus has made claim to one of the most sacred things in Israel at the time. That was the keeping of the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He is claiming all kinds of authority. And demonstrating that he has the power to back it up. And, and because of this, Jesus' fame is beginning to spread. So let's read Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from around the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he'd healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Our outline of this passage today is verses 7 through 12, the demand grows. 7 through 12, the demand grows. 13 through 15, the king delegates. The king delegates. And 16 through 19, the labor is shared. For those of you who are type A right now, and you're going, it says 3 to 12. That's my fault. It's not Walter's fault. I, I sent him the wrong slide. 7 through 12, the demand grows. 13 through 15, the king delegates. And 16 through 19, the labor is shared. So let's take a look at the, the growing demand, verses 7 through 12. As Jesus continues his ministry to the region around the Sea of Galilee, he begins to gather people from the entire nation of Israel. There's people from Judea and Jerusalem to the east. Idumea to the south, which is near the border of Egypt and Israel. Then there's the area beyond the Jordan to the west, and Tyre and Sidon to the northeast of Israel. 
In a short time, the popular, Jesus' popularity goes from a local movement to really a national movement. Jesus goes viral. In the same way that crowds gathered around Elvis or the Beatles or in modern day times, The Rock or Charlie D'Amelio, Jesus has a growing bunch of fans. But as Kathy mentioned in our sermon prep time this last week, she said, fans are not the same as followers of Jesus. Now, remember, this is happening also in a day and age where there isn't social media, there isn't even, you know, television. This is all spreading word of mouth. And it's becoming this national movement that's picking up steam behind this person, Jesus, this carpenter from Galilee. The news about Jesus is spreading like wildfire through the land. And soon, the ministry of Jesus becomes an issue of safety for Jesus because the crowds are so massive and the needs are so great. I can think of this moment, actually, where when I was in the school of ministry, we were invited to go and take some resources to a, uh, a migrant worker camp in the northern part of Baja, Mexico. And so we were, you know, we went to this migrant worker camp and all of, of these migrant workers were, were there and they basically live in, you know, shackles and are desperate for resources. And so we're trying to park our bus, there's 36 guys here and we're, we've got big, you know, 100 pound sacks of flour and, you know, beans and rice and all that stuff. We're trying to dole out resources to them and, and the people became frantic. They started punching one another, ladies ripping each other's hair out, and, and finally it the, the clash became so violent that we, we had to like shut the door and leave for our own safety because there was a massive group that was beginning to gather and it was getting really, really rowdy. And so we, we close the door up and, and we start to pull out. And as we're pulling out, people are literally throwing rocks at us and they bashed out the windows on our bus as we were leaving. You see, desperate people do desperately th desperate things. They behave desperately. And that's what's happening with Jesus here. There's people being healed. And so all the people that have diseases are, are coming to Jesus and like, heal me, heal me. But in the process, there's the fear that he might be crushed. Verses 9 through 12. Jesus is healing many with diseases. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because, the, the because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around about him to touch him. And whenever un the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So Jesus is healing many with diseases and casting out demons. The demons are testifying to who Jesus is, but he shuts down their advertising because the messenger matters just as much as the message. He doesn't need demons to proclaim or authenticate his identity. However, as a result of the amazing things that are happening around Jesus, people continue to gather. The crowd becomes so great that Jesus tells his disciples to prepare this boat so that he can get away to safety, but still be able to preach the kingdom to the crowds. Now, the water creates this barrier so that the crowds can't crush him. 
At the same time, the genius of this is that Jesus is using the acoustic effect of the water so that the sound bounces off and he's amplifying his sound to the crowd so that they can all hear him. The sound of his voice fills the air as he continues to preach about the kingdom. Now, at this point, it's important to realize the limitation that Jesus has embraced in the incarnation. That is, Jesus becoming God in the flesh as a human. For all of eternity, Jesus has existed in the Trinity and enjoyed the privileges of infinitude. But now in the incarnation, where Jesus adding this human nature to his experience, he is now limited as a human. He can only be in one place at one time. He's no longer omnipresent or everywhere at once. And this limitation means that only some of the people are being ministered to. The need has outpaced the resource. And the demands of ministry continue to grow. What will Jesus do? How will he care for these people? For those of you who are in a huddle group, this is one of the things that you're going to be talking about as a sort of side note here this week is how popularity, when it is the driving force, like trying to build momentum and popularity, what the pitfalls are that you can fall into. In recent years, you know, we've witnessed the fall of many big names in ministry. Ravi Zacharias, James McDonald, Darren Patrick, Mark Driscoll, and others. Even here, in our own valley, we've, we've seen firsthand the fall of people that have been great leaders. We've seen and partic- partook in some of the fallout of what happens when, when a leader is taken out. Often, when God uses a leader greatly, there are many temptations that come with that. Pride, of course, is one temptation. But there are others as well. A temptation to overwork at the expense of your own home and family. A temptation to to keep up with the crowds and measure your popularity at all times. The exhaustion that can come from trying to please crowds rather than ministering to the crowds and pleasing God. You may or may not know this, but but pastors are leaving the ministry in hordes right now on the end of the pandemic. The political divides, the, the issues with race, the problems and divisions over whether or not every person should be required to be vaccinated or masks or whatever and everybody is looking to pastors to solve all these problems within small church environments. USA News and World Report stated in May of 2021 that after a survey put out by Barna, 29% of those in pastoral ministry said that they had given real serious consideration to quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year. What's going on there? See, as, as God uses a leader, there are pitfalls that they can fall into in pursuing popularity. 
And when the crowds turn, and when, when things get bad, all of a sudden people feel discouraged and they want to give up. And so the goal then in this discussion in your huddle group is, is to begin to talk about those issues. How do we as a body support our leaders? And how, does, how do the leaders protect themselves from falling into the pitfalls of ministry? Because when a leader falls, it affects a lot of people. Amen? Well, Jesus is a fantastic leader. And he sees the needs of the crowds. And, he, and, and he's, he wants to minister to their needs. But what will he do? He's one person in one place at one time. What will he do? Well, the king does something that maybe we perhaps don't anticipate. Or we don't see very often. He delegates. He delegates his authority. He doesn't take it all on himself. Let's pick it up in verse 13. And he went up the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Here we see Jesus' plan and that he's hosting this, this leadership retreat. He goes up a mountain and he calls to him specific disciples, although there are many that are following him. And he calls 12 followers and shares his plan to send them out. The word apostle here means one who is sent, a messenger. Now in choosing the 12 disciples, using the number 12, there's a very clear allusion here to the 12 tribes of Israel. The message Jesus is sending here by choosing 12 is that this is a new kingdom that he's building. And it's different than the old kingdom of Israel, which had 12 tribes. It's different. Jesus is not just the king of Israel. His kingdom is a different kingdom than the kingdom of Israel. Jesus is, Jesus is a greater king. His kingdom is separate and distinct from the nation of Israel. Though there is continuity between the old covenant that formed the nation of Israel and the new covenant that will establish Jesus' kingdom, it is a limited continuity. They're not the same. There are differences between the old covenant kingdom and the new covenant kingdom. For instance, the laws will no longer be written on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of God's people by the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness is granted by the blood of Jesus shed on a cross rather than on, a, on an altar with animals. The old covenant was national, but the new covenant is global. The old covenant was concerned with only the land given to Abraham and Israel, but the new covenant is concerned with filling the whole earth with the glory of God. The new covenant is the new wine that bursts the constraints of the old covenant. It cannot be contained in the old wineskins of the old covenant. It's a new beginning for the people of God. And so Jesus chooses these 12 to signify this transition, this change that is taking place. Now this theme that the apostles are the foundation of this new kingdom is something that's repeated in other places throughout the New Testament. In Luke chapter 22 verse 30. We're told that they will sit as judges over the 12 tribes of Israel, these apostles. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21 is the greater context. But let me just read a couple of verses there that I think are significant. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you're no longer strangers. Talking to the Gentile church at Ephesus. You're no longer strangers and aliens or foreigners. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now listen to this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The foundation of the apostles. In other words, these 12 here are going to carry forward the mission of God and they're going to declare the, the nature of the kingdom and the identity of the king forward. And upon that foundation, God is going to build his church. Matter of fact, this is given to us in a word picture at the, book of, in the, at the end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, it tells us that the apostles are the foundations of the new Jerusalem. Beautiful word picture. It's upon their labor, upon their calling that God would build the church. So this is a, a special grouping of people. Jesus' choosing of the twelve, which is sometimes called the first commission, uh, is an important moment. Now the parallel passage in Matthew 10 gives us a little bit more information about this send out of Jesus' uh, apostles. It says this, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So the first commission of the sending of the apostles was to the household of Israel first and foremost primarily. But then Jesus focuses their ministry after that in the second commission, or called what is sometimes called the Great Commission, to the nations. Go out and preach to the nations, discipling all men. So Jesus sends them out. And he tells the, these disciples, turned apostles, what it was that he wanted them to do. There are three things. He said, first of all, I want you to, he, he wanted them to be with him. Then he wanted them to preach. And thirdly, he wanted them to cast out demons. So let's take a look at those. First of all, be with him in verses 14 and 15. Be with him. The first priority of the apostles was to be with Jesus. What for? They were to learn from Jesus the nature of the kingdom. They were to... They were being sent to represent this kingdom. They needed to understand what it was like. And, and, and the king whom they represent. Now this happened through... Hanging out with Jesus through talking to Jesus and learning to follow in his lifestyle and ministry. This is always the first and highest calling of a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And then he sent them to preach. The second component of Jesus' plan to minister to the masses is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The apostles are sent to use their lips and their vocal cords. Not just their good example. They're supposed to talk about the kingdom. The apostles are sent out to proclaim that the kingdom is arrived, has arrived. And if they sit and learn from Jesus, but they never proclaim what Jesus is doing, they're simply not obeying what Jesus has called them to. So he called them to preach. 
And then the third thing is to cast out demons. Now the, the third piece of what Jesus calls the disciples to do was to display the power of the kingdom through healing and casting out demons. Now the healing part is not included in this passage, but is present in Matthew's account in Matthew 10. And through the demonstration of these miraculous signs, people are given a glimpse of what the coming kingdom of Jesus will actually be like. A kingdom where there is no death. Every tear is wiped away and no one is held captive to the enemy any longer. Now it's worth noting something here that I think is just a curiosity for me and, and probably for you too if, if, uh, if I'm thinking the way that you do. If your brain works the way that I do, mine does. How does this authority actually work? When the text says that Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons or to heal, how does that actually work? Well, remember the framework that we've been discussing about this idea of the kingdom. Jesus is not giving superpowers so that these disciples or apostles can act like Marvel heroes out in the world. That's not actually what is happening. Rather, they are being sent in the name or with the authority of King Jesus. This is, this is not like tapping into the force or having some strange spiritual energy that expels demons where you sort of abracadabra, hocus pocus, and you, you know, are blasting demons out with light energy that flows from your chest. That's not what is happening here. Rather, when they come in the name and authority of Jesus, they're representing him. You say, well, how does that actually work? Well, imagine for a moment that you are sent as an ambassador from the U.S. to go ne negotiate peace with some opposing foreign power. And as the president is briefing you before you, you face them, he says to you, you have authority to let them know that the entire might of the United States military is at your disposal. You represent both me and the American people. See, this is how delegated authority works. The opposing nation may not be afraid of you as an individual, but they should be afraid of the authority that you wield. It is not a personally owned authority that gives you superpowers. It is actually a fear of the consequences of dishonoring the one that sent you. Their treatment of you and their negotiation matters in a huge way for their own safety. And when the disciples encounter demonized people or the sick, they come as representatives of the one who has all power in heaven and on earth. They themselves wield no spiritual force, but the demons, you see, they fear the power that they represent. They fear Jesus. They don't have healing powers, but, but when King Jesus wants the sick to be made whole, they are made whole. They don't have authority to expel demons, but when Jesus is backing them, the demons fear Jesus as a consequence. And so it is to this day. Spiritual oppression, even demonic possession, is still a reality in the world today. Often demons are like, like these spiritual parasites who are drawn towards wounding or people who invite them. Introduction through occult practices or different types of infirmity. 
This is why we can often see demonic activity among those that use drugs, have mental illness, or are introduced to the occult or abused. And when you encounter spiritual battles or even the demonic, you don't have to work yourself up into a frenzy like the showman that we see so prevalently featured on, you know, Christian television or whatever. Rather, we can come boldly and pray against the enemy. We can boldly say, hey, I am here in the name of Jesus. You, you may not be afraid of me. I'm nothing. I'm just this little small person in the kingdom of God. But Jesus has sent me to represent him. You should be terrified of the judge of all the earth. The king of kings backs me and I come in his name. And so we see that the labor is shared. Now we've, we've got this list of names, names that if you've been around the church or you're pretty familiar with, but I, I think it's important to point out a couple of things. These 12 apostles that Jesus specified, as we look through the list of names there, we see people from very different and often opposing walks of life. We have blue-collar workers and white-collar workers. People like Peter, who are on the blue-collar side, and Matthew, who are on the white-collar side. Religious conservatives like Simon the Zealot and liberals like Matthew. Quiet personalities like Bartholomew and Thaddeus, whom we know very little about. And then there's fiery personalities like James and John who, who Jesus calls Boanerges, the, the sons of thunder, which is probably a reference to their fiery personalities or the fact that maybe they were gassy in the backwoods. Some were full of faith like Peter. Others struggled with skepticism and doubt like Thomas. Some were faithful to the end like John, the only disciple who's at the foot of the cross. And others fell to cowardice like Peter. Or sometimes even betrayal like Judas. As I survey the people that Jesus chose to use, I'm filled with hope. I, I can identify with most of the people on that list. I, I've been a loud mouth on the one hand and cowardly the very next moment. I've... I've been brash and rough like James and John. I've, I've had doubts and skepticism like Thomas. And oh, the many, many times I have felt very much like Judas. But here's the good news. <laughs> Jesus used them all. He used them while they were still broken and messy. He named them as apostles and sent them out knowing that they were still a work in progress. He sent them out knowing that one day all but John would forsake him. And that Judas would even betray him. You see, God uses us in our brokenness. He doesn't wait for everything in our lives to be put back together to use us for his glory. In fact, oftentimes it is the experience of the disciples in the Gospels that teaches us that God does some of his best shaping work in our lives as we go. The call to follow Jesus as a disciple and, and to go represent Jesus to the world is the very means by which Jesus shapes us in the process. Jesus purposefully poured into a few relationships in his life 
so that they could be sent to do the same thing. This is how Jesus builds his kingdom. Now, now notice the difference in Jesus' discipleship strategy. Look, take a look at this just real quick. Pastor Paul actually sent this to me uh, yesterday as he was thinking about my sermon in anticipation of preaching this. The modern day discipleship has kind of this idea that like, let's get the masses into the church and then out of the masses, then, then we could pump out just a few disciples at the end. Jesus' concept of discipleship, of how he is going to build his kingdom, is the exact opposite. Jesus picks a few, pours into a few, and those few go out and pour into a few. And then, next thing you know, it is a deluge of the pro proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom to the world. See, that's Jesus' plan. That's his strategy to reach the world. You know, it's our deep conviction here at Heritage that a disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and is leading others to follow Jesus. And since this is the core conviction at Heritage, it, it's something that colors everything that we do and everything we think about. We're constantly trying to find ways that we can continue to help God's people grow, no matter what their strengths are, no matter what their weaknesses might be. We want every person to be able to properly assess where they're at in their own growth and in their own discipleship. That's why we came up with this discipleship assessment tool so that you can kind of, well, like, where are my strengths? Where are my weaknesses in my growth process in Jesus? But the question is, once you've assessed, once you kind of know where you're at, what do you do with it? Well, I think we, we, we need to think about really three dimensions of our growth in the Lord. The first one is education. The second one is transformation, and the third one is exaltation. We need to know the right things. Those right things need to be integrated into our lives so that we actually begin to look like Jesus in the way that we think and live. And then lastly, exaltation. You can do just the knowing and the doing, but if it's not for the glory of God, if it's not in worship response, then you're out of whack and out of balance and you're just falling into moralism and, uh, you know, some sort of behavior modification. That's, that's not what Jesus wants. All deep change will be the result of the harmony of these three dimensions in our lives. And so you might find yourself today in, a, in a, one of a number of places spiritually. First of all, there are the, those that are spiritually dead. That is, they're, they're alienated from the life of God. They do not know who God is. And, and to, to those who are in that place that are still wrestling with, is God real? The gospel is the message to you. It's the answer to that, that Jesus came, he died on the cross, took the, the punishment for your sin, bought forgiveness and redemption for you, has promised the Holy Spirit to live in you so that you might live for the glory of God. And then there, once you're born again, then you become a spiritual infant. This is people who are in the process of maturing past ignorance, things that they didn't know about God and about how to live for his glory. Then you become spiritual children, maturing past self-centeredness through connection to the body, and then finally growing into spiritual young adults, beginning to live God-centered lives in service of others. And the final last step is that in your growth process, you mature into spiritual parents, intentionally and strategically pouring into others to help them grow. See, this is the reason we get involved in the church. 
so we can be a part of God's plan, his funnel, his reverse funnel. We're a part of that. We're invited into that. We're part of the unfolding plan of God in the redemption of the world. And there's good news for you in the lesson of the apostles here. God is continuing to build his kingdom through us. And so we, we've got Bible studies you can be a part of. Right now, there is a, uh, there's an email that's going to be coming to you today at 1145 at the end of the service here that invites you to be a part of Right Now Media, which is this video library resource that's for you. It's got Bible studies. It's packed full of all kinds of really great content. So that you can study at will in whatever areas you've identified that you need growth in. It's a fantastic tool. Folks, Jesus has called you so that he might send you whatever stage of growth you find yourself in. We have this saying around the office that, that we're building the plane while we fly it. <laughs> it's a way of reminding ourselves that our church is both useful to God now and is also still a work in progress. The disciples were being used by Jesus while he was still shaping them. So question... Are you loudmouthed, or perhaps even foul-mouthed like Peter? Good news, Jesus can use you. Are you struggling with doubts like Thomas? Jesus can use you. Quiet and introverted like Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Jesus can use you. Hot-headed like James and John, Jesus can use you. Politically conservative like Simon the Zealot or more liberal like, like Matthew the tax collector. Good news, Jesus can use you. There's a seat and a purpose for you at the king's table. And this is how Jesus builds his kingdom. Through his imperfect but perfectly redeemed people. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and for this reminder. And God, may that sense of calling upon our lives be the thing that shapes all of our action, that you might be glorified in our lives. Lord, I pray, and just as Don said, that we would be a body of believers that are united, relationally connected to one another, growing in Christ, maturing past spiritual infancy, past spiritual childhood, young adulthood, so that we all might grow into spiritual parents, making disciples who make disciples, that for generations after us, Lord, our lives make an impact for your kingdom. So use us, shape us, change us, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>